Welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive with Dr. Rebecca Risk. Do you ever feel that even though nothing seems seriously wrong and you pass all the medical tests, that you still feel that your health, pain, and fatigue are completely out of control? It doesn't have to be that way. Listen to the tips and suggestions given on our program today and take back control of your health. Now, here is Dr. Rebecca Risk. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. Today, we're talking with Ben Westhoff, who is an award-winning investigative reporter and author. And today, we're discussing his book, Fentanyl Incorporated. Ben, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So, what inspired you to write a book about fentanyl? Well, I was actually a music journalist in Southern California, and I was wondering why so many people were dying at raves. I was covering these big electronic music festivals, and it seems like every time there was one, someone was dying. This was in the first part of this decade. And it turns out they were, their deaths were ascribed to ecstasy, but from what I understood, ecstasy didn't usually kill people. So I began digging and found out that the ecstasy, almost all of it was adulterated with these new drugs, and very little was known about these new drugs. So I began investigating them, and it turns out they were almost all made in China. And some of these new drugs include fentanyl. And around the same time, fentanyl started being cut into heroin and killing people. And the thing is that unlike heroin, which is grown from the poppy plant, fentanyl is made synthetically in a lab. And it's much, much stronger than heroin. 50 times stronger. And so people who think they're taking pure heroin often have fentanyl cut in to their heroin and it kills them instantly. And so the more I began researching all these new drugs, the more I realized that fentanyl was the deadliest. And in fact, it's gone on to cause the greatest drug crisis in American history and now kills more people here annually than any drug in history. Well, you know, we're, um, as a society, talking about the opioid crisis, and um, a lot of people are um, under the impression that this is from prescription medication, and the problem is that the prescriptions need not to be written as much as they are, and people are abusing their prescriptions. But um, what I'm actually gathering from your book is that that may not be the case. Yeah, there's three waves to the opioid crisis, and the first one was prescription pills like OxyContin, and those were being way over-prescribed in the 90s and onward. And so people would get them for relatively minor injuries. And then, you know, when they felt better, they would find they were hooked on these pain pills. And so many law-abiding citizens then turned to street heroin and started buying from drug dealers and so that was the second wave of the opioid crisis. Now, more recently, this heroin is almost impossible to find in its pure form in most places. And fentanyl has come in and is replacing heroin, not just, and not just heroin, but 
fentanyl is often found in black market prescription pills. That's how Prince, the singer, died. He thought he was taking Vicodin, I believe, but it was actually cut with fentanyl. And fentanyl is being cut into meth, into cocaine. And that represents the third wave of the opioid crisis, fentanyl. So a lot in your book, you're talking about, um, you actually go quite on a a bit of an exploration. Um, You went all the way to China to figure out what was going on with fentanyl being um, produced and supplied to the states. And, um, you know, I I had some conversations um, in my house last night about your book. Um, I actually think that um, it's probably pissed me off more than any other topic that I've done and, you know, a lot of topics are are including things where things aren't regulated properly or there, there's some denial. And, um, you know, a, a friend died last year and he had probably done cocaine off and on in his life for about 30 years. And suddenly a dose that he had trusted and known killed him and and we now understand because we didn't at the time that he was probably not even choosing to take fentanyl and I think that from what I gather in your book this is happening a lot that that there's obviously there's no regulation on illegal drugs and and people are doing what they think is you know okay uh, somewhat yeah well I'm very sorry to hear hear about your friend and Canada also has the second biggest problem with the opioid crisis, and particularly fentanyl, after the U.S. Um, some people, by the way, pronounce it fentanyl, and some people pronounce it fentanyl. It's so new, new that uh, pronunciation hasn't really been settled on. But, but yeah, in Canada, it's been a tremendous crisis, too. And like you said, it's often cut into other drugs, but in Canada, it's been the worst starting in British Columbia on the West Coast, and fentanyl is often a problem in itself. People are are taking it because it's so powerful, and it's causing a horrible crisis in places like Vancouver, whereas in the U.S., the problem started on the East Coast in places like New England, and now it's spread to the Midwest, and it's it's coming to the West Coast here. And yeah, it's an it's an awful problem in these two countries, and it's spreading to Europe and a lot of other places as well. So, where is it coming from? Well, fentanyl is a medical drug that's made in legitimate labs, and it's an important painkiller. Like if you're If you've had an epidural while giving birth, that's often fentanyl. And if you have a colonoscopy, they often give you fentanyl beforehand. But the fentanyl that's being abused is illicitly made, and almost all of it comes from labs in China. And um, traditionally, drugs have come from countries, drugs used in North America have come from countries like Mexico, Afghanistan and maybe Southeast Asia, but China has the manufacturing industry, the base, 
and particularly chemical and pharmaceutical companies. And they have a huge industry there. China produces more generic drugs and other chemicals than any other, com- any other country in the world. And most of these companies are making legitimate chemicals and drugs. Um, some of them are making these illicit ones, and some companies make both. And so regulating this industry is very difficult, and China is having a hard try- time cracking down on it. But uh, almost all of the illicit fentanyl that's killing people in the U.S., is made in China, and it's either sent directly through the mail, people order off the dark web or even off the regular web, and they get these packages in the mail delivered by the U.S. Postal Service, or else it's funneled through the Mexican cartels who bring them through the border and distribute it on the streets. And so it's coming into the U.S. and Canada through a a couple of different channels, And it's not just fentanyl, but also these fentanyl analogs. And fentanyl analogs are drugs that are very similar to fentanyl, but chemists change the chemical structure just slightly to make something that's legal. A new drug that impacts people like fentanyl, but it's just barely legal because the formula has been tweaked. And then when another when that drug is banned in China, the chemists just make a new one. And this goes on and on and on. So from what I gather from your book, what's happening is they're in China making um, chemicals that are used to make fentanyl. And they're, it's, a le- it's legal at the time that they're making it. And then it gets banned internationally and then China will uh, of course ban it because that happens and then they change a molecule in it so it's slightly different and then they're selling that saying it's it's almost the same thing yeah exactly and this has been going on for a long time China just recently had a new law to ban all fentanyl analogs. So all types of fentanyl, even if it's never been created, it would still be banned. So the U.S. was was glad to see that China doing this, but President Trump has been tweeting recently that China, he believes China is not following through. And even though China has these laws on the books, It does a very poor job of enforcing these laws and regulating this industry. And so it doesn't seem too likely that China's industry will be brought under control anytime soon. Well, now, your experience in China, when you actually went to some of the labs, um, at any time that you did this, did you ever feel like your life was in danger? Well, it was a pretty scary thing, yeah. I, in 2017, I was in the middle of reporting this book, Fentanyl Inc., and I was trying to figure out the China connection, how that worked, because no one had ever really done much reporting on it. And so I began contacting all of these chemists 
and these business people, these lab owners in China, and they're very easy to reach. I just had to Google buy fentanyl in China and stuff like that. And then I made up an assumed name. I pretended to be a drug dealer, and I said I was going to be in China, and they said they would show me the lab. And so I showed up on the first day of 2018 in January and began um, contacting these lab owners, and I, and I was able to infiltrate a pair of drug operations there. One was uh, a smaller lab that made all sorts of fentanyl analogs and synthetic cannabinoids, which are like K2 and spice. They're known as synthetic marijuana, and they're also causing a huge overdose crisis. And the other operation I infiltrated um, sold fentanyl precursors. So these are the drugs that are the chemicals that are used to make fentanyl, kind of like how Sudafed is used to make meth. And this company was crazy because there were hundreds and hundreds of salespeople on a couple of call floors, and they were sitting at cubicles behind computers, you know, these were recent college graduates and they were, you know, it looked like any other office really, but they were selling these horrible chemicals to the Mexican cartels, uh, to Americans and others used to make fentanyl. And it was really a shock to see this. And I learned that not only do companies like this exist right out in the open, but they're actually subsidized by the Chinese government. And these companies get all sorts of tax benefits, grants, and other financial incentives to sell these type of chemicals. So it was a very eye-opening trip. Um, to your question, if I if I was worried that my life might be in danger, I was I was definitely worried, but I took comfort because these aren't like Mexican cartels or Colombian cartels. There aren't a lot of guns in China at all, and these aren't really criminal organizations. These are actual businesses and companies who, like I said, are accepted by the government and even supported by the government. So their main focus is making money. And for that reason, I was not as scared as I might have been otherwise. Yeah, you definitely had a story where you, you were quite sure where you were going um, and, and, you know, thinking that you're actually, you know, going to report a, a drug ring <laughs> as I'm reading your book. I'm like, well, he must have survived because this is in print. But, but you know, it, it, it uh, definitely, you know, brings to light what you were actually re- reporting on. You weren't just going to go see a lab. You were going to go see a drug lab. Yeah, there. Uh, no journalist had ever been inside of one of these Chinese fentanyl labs, and so it's it was important to me because these drugs are killing tens of thousands of people every year, and I needed to see what it was really like to really understand it. So it was a hard thing to talk to my wife about and my parents, but. Ultimately, I survived. I lived to tell the tale, and 
I learned a lot that went into mm-hmm. my book. Yeah, definitely. Um, We're going to take a quick break. We're talking today with Ben Westoff, and we're discussing his book, Fentanyl Incorporated. We'll be back shortly. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Falling Through the Cracks with your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Risk. The email address is anantacalgary at gmail.com. Now, back to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. My co-host Oliver is a seven-pound chihuahua cross, and he sits through all my shows with great puppy patience. He was super happy when I came home with Carbona Pet Stain and Odor Remover, which is an oxy-powered formula with active foam technology, and it is engineered to permanently remove pet stains and odor. Carbona is a household brand. They've turned their decades of cleaning experience into products that get the job done fully, quickly, and easily. Although he tries his best, Oliver sometimes does have accidents. I pulled out the Carbona Pet Cleaner, and voila, we were stain-free and clean. It was easy to use, pet-safe, and hassle-free. The built-in 2-in-1 brush top tackles stain at the surface and deep in the carpet fibers. It is now my other best friend. Use code FTTC at Carbona.com to save 20%. Happy cleaning! Welcome back. Today we're talking with Ben Westhoff and we're discussing his book, Fentanyl Incorporated. So Ben, um, when 
we should make clear that when when these drugs are being sold from the the China lab, it's obviously illegal for them to be in the countries they're being sold to, like Canada and the U.S. But it is legal for them to sell them in China. And and from what I gather from your story, they were aware that they were hiding it and sending it through the packages in a certain way. And then it was coming into countries where it is illegal to land. Yeah, exactly. So these Chinese companies, even though the chemicals they're producing are technically legal by the letter of the Chinese law, they know that the places they're exporting to, it's illegal to have these drugs. And so they resort to a lot of different smuggling techniques. When they're sent through the mail, they they showed me this phony packaging that they use some of them looked like packages of dog food, and they'd put the chemicals in there. One was like um, dried banana chips, and they put them in there. And they, they told me that they have all sorts of people at customs. They have people in the Chinese side, people on the American side. And I don't know how much of this is true, but they, they go to great lengths. And, and other companies use the dark web which is, which basically makes it you know very difficult to identify who's communicating with whom and so it's harder for law enforcement to stop these types of deliveries and then also like we said there's huge quantities of fentanyl fentanyl precursors and other drugs that are sent on cargo ships from China to Mexico and those are, you know, they're only a tiny quantity of these drugs is needed. And so you can fit a million doses in, you know, a small box. And it's almost impossible to find that when it's on a, one of these big container ships. So. so when it comes into North America, what, who's ordering this? What, what's happening to it? Well, there are a couple of different scenarios. One is that the Mexican cartels have ordered it and they are packaging it up. They're cutting the fentanyl and then they're mixing it in with other drugs and sending it across the border. When it comes into the U.S. and Canada through the mail, it's, it's much purer. So this is, these, these shipments through the mail are like 90% pure fentanyl or more. And so these are often dark web dealers, so people who um, will package it up in tiny quantities and sell it on the dark web or the internet. And so there are also people who do things like they buy pill presses, and those also come from China, and they they take you know they take um, the fentanyl and they package it into pills, and then they even stamp it with name brands like Vicodin or OxyContin. And so that's how all of these fake pills come onto the market. And they look exactly like the real ones, but they often kill people immediately who take them. So um, one thing that I've always wondered is if, if this drug is killing people, aren't they killing their customers? 
Yeah, that's what a lot of people wonder. And unfortunately, I think I've talked to a lot of addicted users and law enforcement, and they, they tell me that the addict's mindset you know, their brain has been hardwired just to really crave this drug. And so often they don't even get high anymore. They're just, you know, maintaining. They're getting off sick, as it's called. You know, when you're in withdrawal, you get these flu-like symptoms. But then, you know, they, but they want to get high again. And so fentanyl is so much stronger than heroin, it gets them high again. And when they hear that someone is overdosed, unfortunately, a lot of people, a lot of these addicted users don't say, I should stay away. They say, oh, I want that. If it's that strong, it's not going to happen to me, but I want to feel high again. And that seems to be the sad reality. So they think that it's a better high because somebody died from it. So they go looking for that specific high. Yeah, they think it's a lot stronger if it kills someone or made someone overdose. Okay. And that's not really the case. It's that um, what I understand, and of course this makes sense, is there's obviously no regulation. So what's being made is changing because the drugs that are coming out of China are changing according to what's legal in China. And then it's being made and then cut in into the drugs by the dealer so we have all these hands that the drugs are going to and obviously it could be a different chemical makeup from China that we don't know how it handles with people or it can be a different cut or made different by the certain person that made it and and actually made the actual fentanyl so there's no regulation on that so nobody knows what they're getting ever Yeah, exactly. And that is really the crux of the crisis because it's not just the user doesn't know what they're getting. You know, they could get a mixture that was, say, two parts heroin and one part fentanyl, or it could be one part heroin, one part fentanyl. You know, they have no way of knowing how strong it is. And it's not just them. The the local dealers don't know. The distributors, the regional distributors don't know. Often the only people who know are this may, the sources back in Mexico who originally cut the drugs up, who know what it is, who know how it's cut. And so once it enters the U.S., you know, the, and, and there's, there's things called hotspots too. So it's very hard, very difficult to mix fentanyl properly because such a tiny dose is so powerful. So I talked to street dealers in St. Louis and they said that they would use a coffee grinder, like a Mr. Coffee grinder to mix the heroin and fentanyl. And so they would just put it in there, turn it on, the blades would swipe and mix it all together. But the problem is that this doesn't work to to effectively mix it up at all. And so even within the same batch, the same baggie or whatever, the, the heroin-fentanyl mixture they're taking one time might be completely different than the one they take the next time. So they think it might not be strong enough and they take more and then that could be a lethal dose. That, that absolutely can happen, yeah. 
Yeah. Um, so it, when you were um, just um, talking about all this in your book, it seemed almost like it was whack-a-mole. So a certain analog would become illegal. And before they even signed the papers to make it illegal, the, you know China was already making a different analog and they were well ahead of this. So it seems like we don't have the, the right situation to or we're not dealing with this properly we just keep trying to to ban drugs and obviously illegal drugs are always going to be there we've never succeeded in this war on drugs that we've had for you know 50 some years 60 years um but it just it doesn't seem like we're doing the right thing yeah i agree with that the focus in the war on drugs has always been on the supply side. And we're trying to, you know, we captured El Chapo. We're trying to crack down on China. And the problem is that people are always going to want drugs. And if we don't face that fact, we're going to keep running into the same problems we have. And so... You know, even if we are able to successfully crack down on China and get them to stop producing and exporting all of these bad fentanyls and other drugs, the industry could just migrate. And already India is starting to pick up a lot of the slack. And there's been some big fentanyl bust there. And so my belief is that we really need to work on the demand side in the U.S. and Canada. And... There's been some movement towards that. There's been a lot of people talking about giving people care, treating the addiction symptoms instead of locking people up. But there's still way too much of that going on. And fentanyl is being treated differently. So President Trump signed criminal justice reform that shortened sentences for a lot of people, and that's great, a lot of drug offenders, but fentanyl was classified differently. And so for people who are caught on fentanyl offenses, they aren't getting shorter sentences, and in fact, in a lot of cases, they're getting longer sentences. And so this is kind of a fundamental problem in how we deal with this issue. Well, and if everything is cut with fentanyl, that's going to be everybody anyway. So it it doesn't seem to be solving any of the problems. Exactly. And yeah, and you've touched on another important issue is that there's a lot of lip service paid to um, prosecuting the dealers and leaving the individual users alone. Except the problem is that many people aren't these big kingpin dealers. They're just selling to support their own habits. And so a lot of times the users and the dealers are the same people. And then they don't, these dealers don't even realize, like you said, that fentanyl is in the drugs that they're selling. There's no way they could know. And so to have special punishments to lock these people up for longer, it's really just exacerbating the problem and not getting to the real heart of the issue. Well, and you talked in your book about um, there are some organizations that are trying to not only bring awareness, but help people test the drugs that they're taking. What's going on there? 
Yes, this movement is called Harm Reduction, and it's kind of like sex education. You know, if you believe that kids are always going to have sex, then you want to teach them how to do it safely, as opposed to abstinence education. And harm reduction is basically, like I said, admitting that people are going to use drugs. We just want to help them do it safely. And so one method that you mentioned is called drug checking. And basically, there are these kits, and they're sold from companies on the Internet like Bunk Police. And these kits are are pretty inexpensive. And basically, they can tell help you identify if the drug you have is what you think it is. So if, say, you get an ecstasy pill, you scrape off a tiny little bit, and if, it, if it's actual ecstasy, actual MDMA, it will turn purple, like a dark purple. If it's something else, it will turn a different color. And the same thing with fentanyl and heroin. If you, you test your, your heroin, and these drug-checking kicks can tell you if there's fentanyl in them, if there's fentanyl in the heroin. And um, fentanyl test strips are also in this same vein. And to me, these are a critical part of harm reduction because there have been studies done, including one in Vancouver, and it shows that when people find fentanyl or other bad chemicals in their drugs, they're less likely to use them, they're more likely to be safe, and they're less likely to overdose and die. Which is definitely what we want, which I think is why, you know, I got so pissed off yesterday because, you know, knowing that um, this kind of education could have saved a friend's life um, and, and there, there, a friend's son also died last week of a fentanyl overdose. And so, you know, this was a, a hot topic in my house last night. And uh, um, I, I, I just don't understand why we aren't pushing this more and educating people more because anytime the opioid crisis gets talked about it's in terms of prescription medication and even though I thought that I knew what was going on I, I didn't until I read your book so the, the, the knowledge isn't what it should be yeah absolutely there's, there's not a lot that's known the education campaigns are lacking when it comes to these new drugs because, and I think it's kind of a remnant of the just say no policies and propaganda of the 80s and 90s. Um, basically, kids were taught that all drugs are bad, all drugs are going to kill you or turn you into some sort of zombie. And people realized that wasn't true. People, you know, were smoking marijuana and realizing it wasn't killing them. And so they began to tr- distrust everything that the government was saying. And I think information campaigns now need to be honest and they need to tell people and kids in particular that there's really a difference between these drugs that that K2, synthetic marijuana, this is not like regular marijuana. This won't chill you out. This will make your heart race. This will make, make you overdose, you know, and that fentanyl, you know, no one's saying heroin is a safe drug, but people have been on, there are people who have been heroin addicts for decades, and they, they take one dose of fentanyl and they're dead. 
people need to know that fentanyl is a new drug. It's much stronger. It's much different. It's a it's a totally different ball game. I definitely agree. Um, we're going to talk about this more when we get back today. We're talking with Ben Westoff, and we're discussing his book Fentanyl Incorporated. We'll be back shortly. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective, plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Falling Through the Cracks with your host, Dr. Rebecca Riss. To reach the program today, please call in to 1 866 472 5792. Again, that's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Risk. The email address is anantacalgary at gmail.com. Now, back to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Today, we're talking with Ben Westoff, and we're discussing his book, Fentanyl Incorporated. So, Ben, you know, when I want to touch on what they're making the war on drugs sound like. Um, On Facebook, I follow a lot of um, groups of chronic illness. And just so that I know what's going on out there, there are things that I treat. I have chronic Lyme, so I deal a lot with chronic pain with my patients because that is what I treat. And there seems to be a war on pain patients. And, um, you know, just last night, there was a post about how someone couldn't get their prescription drug that they'd been on and stable on for a long time at a low dose, because their doctor was afraid of the DEA. And I'm just wondering if if this is a war that that is just taking some casualties with it, that, that is misplaced and misguided, or if this is something that we should actually be concerned about. Yeah, you've touched on an important issue, and the opioid crisis is very complicated. Like I said earlier, the first wave of the opioid crisis did stem from this overprescription of prescription pills like OxyContin, and that definitely fueled the problem. In 2010, however, OxyContin came out with a new version of its pill, 
And previously, people had been smashing it up and snorting it or injecting it. And so this new version of the pill couldn't be smashed up. It turned into kind of a gummy paste. And there was a study at Washington University in St. Louis that showed that a huge percentage of those people then switched to heroin. And so that's at the crux of the problem. In recent years, in the U.S., and I'm sure in Canada too, there's been a big movement to reduce the prescription of opioid pills. And I'm sure on balance that this is a good idea. You know, we were, doctors were prescribing opioids for all sorts of uh, problems that could have been easily addressed with less powerful drugs. But the issue is for people who have been, who have chronic pain and have been taking opioids for a long time. So I'm not a doctor. I don't pretend to know the answers, but I do know that just taking people's opioid pills away can cause much bigger problems. Um, for one thing, like I said, it can make people turn to street drugs like heroin, which have a lot worse problems. Um, and, you know, it makes patients feel like they're criminals. It definitely is not going to make the problem better. And so I, while I'm in favor of doctors reducing the amount of opioids they're prescribing to new patients, I'm not sure that taking someone's opioids away is a good idea. Well, you know, I, I agree with that because the stories that I've seen, uh, and these are often in America, I don't um, see it quite as much here, but there is some in Canada as well, but they're they're just suddenly not given their prescription anymore, and they're going cold turkey, there's no conversation, they're, they're just not allowed to have it, and they have been, you know, people that have been stable on it, they're worried about losing their jobs, their homes, their family, and, you know, I do wonder if some of them are turning to street drugs because of the amount of pain that they're in. Unfortunately, we can't measure pain, but having been in pain myself, in chronic pain, I can understand the desperation that somebody would be in to want relief. And I can see that, that you know, this solution just isn't going to go anywhere good. Yeah, absolutely. And ironically, in Canada, there's a lot of talk. I just read an article yesterday about um, giving addicted users opioid prescription pills. So like heroin addicts and fentanyl addicts that, you know, prescribing prescription opioid pills to them might be the answer. And so that's kind of the opposite of what is being thought in America. So right now in a number of European countries, heroin addicts can actually get prescription heroin that's funded by the government. And the idea is that it's not always the heroin addiction or the opioid addiction that kills people. In fact, it's usually not. Like I said earlier, addicted people who are addicted to opioids and even heroin can live healthy lives till old age. But it's, you know, things like sharing dirty needles, it's the side effects of the lifestyle associated with street drugs, you know, passing out in alleys, crime, 
violent crime, things like that, that are more likely to, to kill people than the drug itself. And so they've had a ton of success with this in places like the Netherlands. And essentially they've seen the, the rates, the rates of new users just dramatically plummet. And they're the crime, the, the costs associated with the heroin epidemic have been dramatically reduced too, because people aren't robbing and stealing to, to feed their habits. And the other thing I should mention, and that it's another thing that Canada has really been at the forefront of, is supervised injection facilities. And there are a number of these in Europe and in Canada. And what they are is basically a kind of a safe space where an addicted user can come and use his or her drugs, heroin, fentanyl, even things like crack, cocaine, meth. And there are nurses and doctors on the facilities. There are clean needles. There are, you know, Narcan available if someone has an overdose. And it's basically a place where people can shoot up safely. And so there's never been a recorded incident of someone dying at one of these supervised injection facilities. In places like Vancouver, they're, they're really credited with helping make an, the epidemic not nearly as bad as it would have been otherwise. And, and yet in the U.S., there are none. There are zero. They're, they're not legal. And a bunch of cities have tried to start them, but the federal government has been pressuring them and shutting them down. So that, to me, is another important harm reduction tactic. Well, in, in, in your book, you, you talked about it. I, I remember the conversation before that um, opened in Vancouver. Um, and, uh, you know, I was uh, very supportive. And, and reading your book, I, I under, even understand it more because you're ta- you talked about countries where, you know, this kind of thing is in place and um, there is less crime, less people ODing. These people are functioning in society and, um, you know, they are addicted and we need to recognize that these are very hard drugs to get off of and uh, possibly impossible. Um, and so to, to just ostracize them and say, you know, too bad and we're not going to make this safe is also turning a blind eye saying that this is something that is going to go away, which is how, you know, America is treating it, that we're going to have this war and we're going to win and this is going to go away. But, you know, people have been using recreational drugs for you know hundreds of years i don't think this is going to stop yeah absolutely and i think that's sort of the underlying philosophy of this we want to be realistic and we want to use proven solutions you know if we took even a fraction of the money that's dedicated to the war on drugs and moved it towards harm reduction I think there would be, you know, very quickly we would see the number of overdose deaths dropping. Another important harm reduction tactic is medication-assisted therapy. And so traditionally, a lot of opioid addicts have been given methadone. And methadone is, has been successful for a lot of people, but it's also a fairly strong opioid itself. And it's responsible for thousands of overdose deaths a year. So there are new drugs known by names like Suboxone, 
which are much milder, but they also satisfy opioid cravings. And so medication-assisted therapy gives people access to these drugs like Suboxone. And not only that, but it works, but addicted users see therapists and have counseling. So it's not just people getting medicine and then, you know, being sent home. Because it's often the case that and, and I learned a lot of this from Johan Hari's book, Chasing the Scream, is that it's not just that the drug gets its chemical hooks in you. It's, it's a combination of both the chemical and lifestyle factors. So a lot of addicted users have big problems in their lives, you know, unemployment, issues with family, things that are sort of taking them under psychologically. And if people can receive these, these, these drugs to help them taper off and at the same time work through the problems in their lives, they see really high success rates of people who are able to just quit opioids entirely. And so I'm a big proponent of that type of therapy. Well, yeah, and Johan Hari talks a lot about community being really important. And in this war on drugs, we're doing the opposite. We're ostracizing addicts and we're we're making them, you know, afraid to, to come forward and afraid to talk about it because they may go to jail, they might get caught. Um, and, and, you know, if, if we have more open arms, I think we can heal as a society in this situation more. Yeah, absolutely. And you're right that drug abuse is still seen as um, this sort of shameful activity. But I think, you know, if there's anything good to come out of recent years is that those attitudes are starting to change. I was in a place called Grand Forks, North Dakota. North Dakota is one of the most conservative states in the country. But they had uh, an opioid outbreak of fentanyl deaths and other deaths from opioids. And it really shocked the community. And so they implemented all these great harm reduction techniques. And not only were they targeted at opioid victims and, and potential opioid victims, but it started going to other, other drugs as well. And even alcoholism now is viewed there as not something that's a moral failing, but rather it's a, a medical problem. It's a, it's a health problem that should be addressed the same way as a disease. And so that's what the public health administrator was telling me there, that there's been a sea change in attitudes. And I think that's happening in a lot of places. And so if that can be the legacy of the opioid epidemic, then I think that will be something positive to come out of this. I definitely agree, and I think anybody who um, is affected by this, and I, I think that, you know, if people ask around, they're going to find more and more that, that they are. Uh, you know, it, it's it's so common now to hear about somebody who OD'd and you know back in the days when I partied it, ODing was something you did on purpose um, and and now um, it, it's you know taking your regular dose of something that you think is it, it, it isn't what you think it is and uh, that's pretty scary and and I think we definitely need change I agree with you absolutely it's it's a totally different different worlds out there. I mean, yeah, when I was a kid too, when I was a teenager, the drugs 
I mean, they told us that they were super harmful, but most of them really were pretty safe. And it's it's a totally different landscape right now, and it's it's very scary time to have kids. And I honestly believe that a, a frank education, you know, t- talking to your kids, but providing them real information, not just trying to scare them, you know, but letting them know that there are there is a difference, but that any powder, any pills you take nowadays could be cut with fentanyl. And I, I've seen too many people who will just take whatever powder, whatever pill, and they want to have a good time and they don't even think about it. But there are drug checking kits. There are, there are ways to be safe even now. Well- Thank you so much for for sharing all of this. Um, I recommend that anybody pick up your book, um, whether you don't have to do drugs. It's really important to understand what is going on because this affects everybody. Um, your book just came out last week. It's called Fentanyl Inc., How Rogue Chemists Are Creating the Deadliest Wave of the Opioid Epidemic. Um, and can you just let us know um, how people can get a hold of you if they have any questions or anything? Yeah, you can visit my website. It's benwestoff.com. You just Google me, Ben Westoff, and you can find the, a lot of information about the book there. I'm going to be at a lot of different cities in the U.S. during September doing book events and speaking at opioid conferences and summits and uh, also in October and, and through November. So would love to hear your story. And um, thanks, for, thanks, Rebecca, for having me on. Well, um, thank you so much um, for everybody listening. Again, that was Ben Westoff, and the book is Opioid Inc. And if you want more information about my journey back to health, you can find it on my website at dr-risk.com. Don't forget to follow me on Facebook, Twitter, uh, or Instagram. Thank you so much for listening today. Be sure to make today a great day. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Please join Dr. Rebecca Risk again next Monday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk more next week.